Even for a gifted musical instructor, successfully leading a junior high band presents an enormous challenge. I blush, however, to recall the pitiful efforts of a particular substitute band teacher in my junior high. She possessed sufficient musical expertise, but she did not bring to the conductor's platform a particularly strong constitution, which in such a setting is of inestimably greater value than musical ability, I think. But receiving a tip that our regular instructor was gone and that this substitute was due to guide our band again that day, the majority of our band would switch instruments and assume the name of the person in whose seat we were. Uh, she would call roll and find that everyone was in their seats, so she, so she supposed, with the right instrument and the like. Uh, she'd announce the first number, and I can still see her to this day with a little bit of guilt in my conscience, but I can still see her today raising her hands raising the wand as she sat there on the platform, and you could just see in her eyes, she was picturing herself before a great philharmonic orchestra. And she'd come down with that first uh, movement, calling for the first note, and the vile sound that was produced by junior high band members who were playing an instrument they knew nothing about could have uh, raised the dead and killed the living all in one. She lectured, she fumed, she prodded, she tried anything she could to restore order. But I remember as that scenario played out every time she was in the classroom, it went from a little bit of order to less and less and less order as more and more people gained greater courage and chaos reigned. Now any objective, reasonable person would realize immediately that this situation was not good. As junior high band students, we were not reasonable and we thought it was good, but it wasn't good. Being as it was, though, a rare experience in the relatively insignificant context of a junior high band, not much was really lost. But on a broader scale, the page of human history has been marred by the reign of chaos in far more significant contexts. Throughout human history, families, think about it, neighborhoods, Cities, countries, and even entire civilizations have experienced a breakdown of order and societal stability. And the chaos that reigns resembles a band of players all playing an unknown instrument just for the fun of it. The sweet music of harmony and beauty are brushed aside, chaos reigns, and disintegration spreads like a destructive cancer. This horrifying experience leaves thinkers scrambling to discover what is it that civilizes mankind? What is it that gives cohesion to society and keeps man from caving in to the debased lure of chaotic disorder and ruin? What is it? Kevin Costner recently directed and starred in the movie The Postman, which I understand from a written review is a worthless and degenerate adaptation of a futuristic novel written by David Brin. Uh, and the, I, apparently the novel has some literary value. But in novel form, Brin tackles the question, what is it that civilizes mankind? He chooses as the setting of his novel the Pacific Northwest. The protagonist is Gordon Kranz. And I quote the words of reviewer Roy Maynard, Thirteen years earlier, the U.S. Had, a, had won a nuclear war, but its fatally wounded infrastructure had collapsed a few months later. 
Gordon lived through the swift disintegration of society brought about by disease, famine, and the destructive leadership of survivalist Nathan Holm. All that's left are a few scattered communities, disunited and distrustful. Well, growing up in 21st century America, Kranz knows little about survival, so he travels about from one isolated community to the other, quoting Shakespeare, hoping that somebody will give him a warm meal and a place to stay. What happens along the way is that he finds a post carrier's a postal carrier's uniform and pouch, and there's mail in it, and so he decides he'll try the same thing with the mail, and he tries to deliver the mail and hoping again to find some food. What happens is that he becomes a symbol of the lost order that America once knew. And through Gordon Kranz, Bryn establishes the idea that man is civilized by two things. First of all, order. Civilization is not itself oppressive as so many want to claim. Man is oppressive in his very nature. With or without civilization. But order is established and essential for stability. But as refreshing as it is insightful, Bryn claims that the foundational reality which civilizes man, which gives order to civilization, in the narrow sense of the word man, is woman. In other words, societal stability depends upon the male-female relationship. Bryn is no Christian theologian, and so he gravely errs by missing the supremacy of God in his novel. But frankly, he may have a better practical grip on reality than many Christians. I suspect that many Christians in our land today think that economic prosperity is of much greater significance to societal order than, say, divorce, or single parenthood, or how men and women relate to one another in society. Those things are important, but they're not important to order. I think so many are thinking today. Believer, we need to hold in our heart, and this is my proposition to you today, we need to hold in our heart a healthy reverence for the God-designed societal cornerstone of male and female. We find this revelation not in some short-sighted novel, not merely on the pages of recorded human history, but we find it in the Word of God. In the second chapter of Genesis, we've looked at verses 4 through 7, and we saw last week that God is the giver of human life. Notice again, chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. We have there the physical part of humanity. God forming the physical body, breathing in the spiritual part of humanity. God is, or man is body plus spirit equaling living soul. In verses 8 through 15, we saw that God is the initiator of human civilization. He creates man's habitat, and then he gives to man in that habitat a commission. You are to work to care for this garden. In verses 16 through 17, you'll notice there again that God is the arbitrator of human ethics. He alone is to determine what is good and evil. Remember that from last week, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil probably was not some special kind of poisonous fruit. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the sense that to eat it, man would be determining for himself what is good and what is evil. Only God can do that. 
He's the arbitrator of human ethics. He decides what is right and wrong for us. We do not decide for ourselves. Now we come to the final element of divine ingenuity in the creation of man and his environment. And that element is the creation of the woman. Among all the ancient accounts of the creation of mankind, there is none like this one. When you think about it, it is the pinnacle of chapter 2, and it is the pinnacle of this sixth creative day, in a sense. It is the completion of it. And God, in Genesis chapter 2, elevates woman. He lifts her up. He makes her look unique and to be cherished. There's nothing like it in all of ancient history. No account like it. We begin reading with verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. Does that not bring something to your attention? There's this recurring phrase in chapter 1. What is it? And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. One benediction after another. But we come to chapter 2 and verse 18 and we find the first malediction. Something's bad. It's not good. God creates, as we noticed last week, man from the dust. Adam from Adama. He brings him, the man, Adam from the dust, Adama. It's an awe-inspiring creation. But now God steps back like an artist analyzing his work and says, it's just not right. I'm not done yet. It's not complete. It's not good for the man to be alone. The Hebrew word speaks of isolation. Isn't that an amazing statement when we think of who is on earth right now? Adam and God. How could man be incomplete with his creator? It's amazing when we think that God is the ultimate source of human joy, as he will and has made clear in the seventh day. We might think that Adam should be complete with God, but amazingly, that's not what God thinks. The triune God is not satisfied that the creation of man in his image as a singular isolated being is good. And so God deliberates with himself in the second uh, part of verse 18, I will make a helper suitable for him. An interesting thing happens here in the text. I don't know if you caught it, but does God speak of himself in the plural or the singular? I, singular, will make man. Now how did God speak of himself in chapter 1? Remember chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, what does he say? Let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. He comes here at the first half of the second half of day 6, and he says, I will make man. Bringing out the idea of the singular here and emphasizing the isolation of man created in his image. Now, we don't read here that Adam was complaining to God, only that God himself judges the situation incomplete and thus unacceptable. Now, think about the creative week again. Day one, God creates light. Day four, he completes day one with the creation of the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day two, God created the expanse by separating waters above the earth from waters on the earth and in day five, he completed the sky by filling it with birds and the waters with sea creatures. On day three, what happens? God creates dry land, grass, trees, and plants. On day six, God completes the earth by, com by creating upon it animals, day 6a, and then man, day 6b. 
Now on day 6B, God completes the man by creating Eve. You see the completion that continues to go on throughout the creative week. By creating woman, God demonstrates his understanding of what is good. She is, as the text declares here in verse 18, a helper. It's not a demeaning phrase because that very Hebrew word is used of God in the Old Testament as the helper of Israel. And quite often the Hebrew word is used in context where one military force comes and joins another military force against a common enemy. So such help is, I think, in many ways the most psychologically uplifting experience known to mankind. You're fighting an enemy. You're fighting for your life. And all of a sudden, somebody comes and joins you. You can look through the pages of history and find what a great relief that is psychologically to troops. Think of what it meant to this country to have France join our side against Britain. That just changed everything in the Revolutionary War. God says, I bring to you in your isolation a helper. Somebody that comes in and completes you. She is to complete man. And as his helper, we see then not only the sexes, as one has said, the sexes mutual need of completion, but also a non-reversible orientation of the woman towards the man as the reference point for her life. We'll go to that later. But she completes him. She is his helper. God describes this helper as one who is suitable for him. For the King James translates it meet with the Old English meaning of fitness. Both of these translations really stumble to attempt to depict the Hebrew term, which is literally, it just doesn't sound very good to us, and so I don't know any translation that translates it this way, but it's actually a helper in front of him, or a helper according to what is in front of him. This Hebrew phrase speaks of something very conspicuous and is often used in the Old Testament with the sense of to declare or announce or proclaim or to get someone's attention. So God says, I'm going to help to make a helper for you that you can't miss. Why does God say that? Why, why does he speak of her as one who's conspicuous and in front of him and one that he can't miss? Why does he say that? Verse 19 and 20 answers. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. That's why he says that. No suitable, no conspicuous, no face-to-face helper is found. The Hebrew text may indicate here, I mentioned that in the adult class this morning, but it may indicate here that God actually performs a unique creative act here, bringing before Adam some select representatives of the animal world. We're not sure exactly how this all happens. But God, obviously, verse 20, does not bring before Adam all the creatures that he had created. There's no sea creatures that come, you know, or whatever, floating before Adam here as he's on ground. There's no creeping things. He's not going through all the insect world or something like that. But God did bring a sizable number of animals before Adam to be named. And with, this un- with his unfallen thinking ability, Adam is able to do so within the confines of this sixth creative day. Maybe he had something like the Latin system where he just classified and could remember what he had said about the last uh, animal that walked on four legs or something. We're not sure how he did this. But what I want you to focus on for a moment 
is the significance of naming the animals. It speaks of two significant ideas. First of all is authority. Naming speaks of authority. Who's naming the, the animals here? Adam is. Do you see it? Adam is now speaking. To confer a name upon something is to speak as an authority and as a sovereign. There is no one that's going to come into our home and name one of my children's stuffed animals. That's their job. And there's nobody here that's going to come into the hospital when we have a child and name my children, as much as that would have been very helpful a few times. <laughs> You're not going to do that, and I'm not going to come and tell you what the name of your kid should be. We assign names where there is established authority. We give names to our pets. A neighbor doesn't name our pets. They might have their own name for your pet, but they don't, they don't name your pet. Horses, airplanes, boats, all kinds of things. We name them. I think in the naming here, there's a sort of snickle-snort factor. Let me explain what I mean by that. You remember Jacob wrestling with God? What does Jacob say as he wrestles with God? The weirdest thing in the world. I mean, you're wrestling with somebody, and they're trying to kill you, and you're trying to kill them for all you know, and you say, what's your name? What's he saying? For God to name himself to Jacob in that wrestling event would be to evidence the fact of Jacob's authority and superiority. And so God doesn't name himself. He names Jacob, Israel. In our house, we don't say uncle. When dad gets you in a headlock and you can't handle it anymore, you don't say uncle. But you know that little name we pay? In our house, it's snickle snort, okay? There's, you've been had. You say snickle snort and dad lets you loose. I don't know why or where that came from, but that's just the thing. Yielding to a name evidences authority. Who named John the Baptist? Do you remember that? I mean, who names a child? The parents name a child, but the angel names John the Baptist. You remember Zacharias, and they're all saying, you can't name him that. Of course, it, it was his job to name his son, but they all had an idea what that name ought to be. You know, but it's still, it was, it was his responsibility to name his own son. And he said, no, his name's John. The angel named him. God steps in and exercises the divine prerogative to name this unique servant, showing his authority and showing his sovereignty. Created in God's image, man exercises dominion as God's vice regent by naming the animals. He speaks. There is nothing in the animal world that approximates the human larynx. With this organ, man speaks and thereby reveals his inner person and his will. Animals are living beings in the sense that they breathe, but only man speaks with the ability to control his world. And I know there's some, you've probably seen some Channel 2 show on apes, you know, how they're learning to talk, but have you ever seen an ape control his world with his speech? If so, he, I know the first thing I'd say if I was an ape to control my world, I'd say, let me out of this cage. You know, they don't say that. They might say a name or two or a couple of words. They might be able to, they can't control their world. They're not facing the scientist as he comes in in the morning and flips the light on, standing at the cage saying, now listen, you really ought to let me out of here, appealing to him. They don't speak that way. And our speech is unique. There's authority that is de demonstrated here in the naming of the animals. There's secondly, understanding. Young children often have that, Question, what is that? What's that? Or who's that? Why do they ask that? It's a desire to understand their world. It's a desire to classify their world, to distinguish. And it just dawned on me this week 
in our little one, little five-month-old boy, he's already doing this. He's distinguishing. Finally, I come home now, and he doesn't look away as if you've been there all day, but now he grins, he smiles. And there was a man holding him this week, and he was comfortable in that man's arms, and I walked into the room, and he turned his head and looked at me, and he grinned. What's he saying? That man is my man. He's distinguishing between men. And of course, when it comes time to eat, that mom is my mom and dad doesn't exist. You know, they, they know, they know the difference. They turn their head, they grin, they're looking at mom. They know, they begin to distinguish. That's what Adam's doing here. If it's computers, butterflies, cars, trade, medicine, sports, you name it, as one has said, anyone interested in anything will feel they have failed to master their field unless they have names for everything. What Adam is doing here is not mere curiosity. God is leading man to begin the process of subduing the earth. And what we have here is the beginning of science, which can in its most basic sense be reduced to the process of taxonomy. The exercise of naming by distinguishing uniqueness. We name and thus distinguish between cancer and a cold. We name and we can distinguish between a poison and a medicine, a dangerous animal or a domestic animal, a destructive insect or a helpful insect. We name, we classify, we distinguish. One has said most of us underestimate the power of language to bring order to our minds. By, but guided by God, Adam begins to understand his world by rightly naming that world. You see here where evolution goes astray. It doesn't properly name the world. Great philosopher and evolutionist Plato called man a what? A featherless biped. He looked at it and he distinguished between all the things on the earth and he said, this is what man is. He's a featherless biped. You know, maybe heard the story. Plato was lecturing in a garden one day. I don't know if it's true or not, but they recorded it as true. But whatever, it serves its point. He's lecturing in a garden one day and over the garden wall before him and his students plops a dead chicken. And he goes and he picks the chicken up and he finds that it's a plucked chicken and it has a note on it. It says, Plato's man, <laughs> a featherless biped, a featherless creature walking on two feet. What was the point? Plato, you don't have it right. Millennia later, fallen humanity continues to misidentify man. We read that several weeks ago. But the statements of the evolutionists and of the philosophers of our day that link humanity with nothing more than a grain of sand or something of the like. Like Plato, the evolutionists of our day fail to distinguish man as uniquely created in the image of God. And the result is chaos. The result is disintegration. But back to Adam, who properly identifies all the creatures God passes in front of his nose, Adam realizes something strangely unsettling. In the latter part of verse 20, we read this, there's no suitable helper found. God knew he was going to create Eve. God knew that. The point of verse 18 is not, oh no, now what do I do? Let's see, let's see, let's see. It's just not right. What am I going to do? That's not the point. God wanted Adam to realize there was no conspicuous helper for him. He wanted Adam to realize that he was incomplete. And so he brings a horse before, and that's a 
This is not it. He brings a, a dog and a lion and a pigeon, and he brings these things before Adam. There's nothing out there that corresponds. It's just not it. No helper. No one who stands in front of Adam. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. On this sixth creative day, God continues to act. On day 6A, we have the land animals. On day 6B, man. On day 6B, one, Adam. On day 6B, two, Eve. You can uh, say that, girls, if anybody asks something about it, just say, I'm turning into a 6B, two. <laughs> But that's what, that's what she was. She's 6B2, day 6B. She's a mankind too. Adam first, then Eve. But God causes a deep, deep sleep to fall upon Adam. Was there pain before sin? Was God anesthetizing Adam? I, I, we don't really know. But what is evident in the rest of Scripture is that there is distinct foreshadowing here. I don't think we can miss it. In Genesis 15 and verse 12, God establishes his covenant with Abraham. And what is Abraham doing? He's in a deep sleep. Same Hebrew phrase. In Genesis chapter 28 and verse 11, God confirms the covenant with Jacob. When Jacob is sleeping, he has a dream, the latter going into heaven and the like. Man sleeps while God blesses him. It happened with Adam. It happened with Abraham. It happens with Jacob. And I think in it we cannot fail to see what God is saying. He, we do not work for divine blessing. We receive it in virtue of His grace. And we can see, and we also, I think, can see some parallel to Jesus. At least trace this out with me. If you don't buy it entirely, trace it out. Think about it. Adam's side is ripped open while he sleeps. Jesus' side is pierced as he hangs in death from the cross. From Adam's wound comes a bride. From Jesus' wound comes the source of life for the bride, the church. But here the first Adam, the incomplete Adam, sleeps deeply. And while he is sleeping, we read in verse 22 that the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken for man. It probably includes portions of the flesh and blood. The word rib in the Hebrew is translated that way because it says one rib. But the word translated rib is usually translated side. So I don't think we're to think that God took this rib out and scraped everything off until it was just rib. He took a piece of Adam's side. And from that side, again, we see God, in a sense, getting down on the dirt and creating woman out of those basic elements. A woman. Let's think back to chapter 2 and verse 7. Body plus spirit equals living soul. She is also body plus spirit. But there is a uniqueness in her body. As God creates Eve down there on the dirt, Adam sleeping next to him, he's creating down here on the dirt this woman with all of the intricacies of Adam, but very different. Her skeletal structure is more delicate. Her shape is less angular, more rounded. Her muscles are less suited to strong contractions and more suited to active compliance at the right moment. Her skin is softer, more tender, and smoother. Her blood, bodily liquids, nervous system, internal organs, and brain structure are all unique from Adam. She thinks differently. She's more emotional, more intuitive, more nurturing, more socially oriented, and she can memorize things better. 
In fact, every cell of her body was different than Adam's. And I, I just heard this week that every cell of the human body has more information than the most powerful computer known to man. Every cell. Every cell in her body had, a, had an X and an X chromosome. Every cell in his body has an X and a Y chromosome. She is different in every way, though man. Physically, she's different, but we are body and spirit, and spiritually she is different. And this is something, the, the physical part is ignored in our culture, but this spiritual idea, the difference of her inner being is very much ignored. Eve was not only physically different from Adam, the conspicuousness, the uniqueness of the woman was completed, that completed him flowed from her very nature. In her inner being, she was fully female. God did not create a sexless psyche, but every physical difference between male and female speaks of an inherent difference. Her softer, more sensitive skin and more delicate bone structure reflected an inner reality. Psychologically, she tended to be more sensitive to people, more fitted to caring and discerning others' feelings. She was not only maternal in the sense that she had breasts and a uterus. She was not only nurturing in that Adam's sperm would penetrate her egg, which would in turn fertilize and nurture the life of the sperm within the womb for months. But in every way, she was a nurturer. As Adam was more strongly equipped for creative or destructive remodeling of his environment physically, so Eve was more equipped both physically and psychologically to arrange what Adam had acquired for her. Unique. She's not another man. She's woman. We then read the latter part of verse 22, that he brought her to the man. This in front of, conspicuous one, this unique one who is just like him but not like him, God brings him, brings her to the man. Now the Hebrew here is, is, is instructive. I, I don't know what it says, and I won't say anything authoritatively, but it would read better, God actively caused her to come unto the man. Now, the Hebrew could just as well mean that God sent her as that he brought her. Uh, so it, it's possible that God's not there as they meet. I don't know. But at any rate, I guarantee there's no more beautiful woman that has ever stood on planet Earth. There she stood in front of him, facing him corresponding to him, absolutely and delightfully conspicuous in Adam's eyes. There's no imperfection or influence of the curse upon her body. And studies show from all cultures that body shapes and types that are preferred are basically the same. There was a beauty in her physically that was untouched by a fallen world. And there she stood before him without sin, without a fallen nature, what follows in the text of the first recorded words of mankind. Verse 23, The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. You don't talk like that unless you're excited. In the Hebrew text, it's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh are intensive statements. Adam's jumping up and down. He's saying, Wow, what's in front of me is conspicuous and I like it. I love it. I am man, ish. She is woman, Isha. 
Adam realized that the being standing opposite him was of his same nature. God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, singular, male and female created he them. This is my completer. So what? Is it just the story or is there some significance to it? You find the next phrase of verse 24, for this reason. I think Moses is now speaking here, now writing here, for this reason. Let's draw some implications. A man will leave his father and mother. That's very strong language. We talk around here about the Velcro rip. Children are Velcroed onto the family. They're going to come off. It's husband and wife that are glued together. He will leave father and mother. There's a permanent and absolute departure. Not responsibility for our parents, but responsibility to them and an inherent social connection to them within the confines of a singular headship. That's going to end. But he will then be united to his wife. The word, or, or cleave, as the King James has it, which actually today means the exact opposite of what cleave means. It means to cling to, not to cut, but to cling to. To cleave to her, to stick to her, to be glued to her is what the Hebrew means. One flesh. He will leave father and mother. They'll be united to one another. They'll cling. They'll be glued together. And they'll be one flesh. It speaks of sexuality, but also of union in every sense of the word. As Leopold writes, one flesh involves the complete identification of one personality with the other in a community of interests and pursuits, a union consummated in intercourse. Man is now complete. God had created man as male and female. Will you follow my outline once again? With essential equality, 127. With inherent heterosexuality. Sex is neither a corrupt nor a human idea. Nor is sex an orientation which we discover for ourselves. Sexuality is God's idea. And to the very cells of our body, he has created us, either male or female. Essential equality, inherent heterosexuality for functional distinctiveness. She was not to be another Adam. There was a unique job that was hers, as there was a unique job for Adam, and then for monogamous permanence. These two were be, to be together for life. In his gracious design, God intends for society to thrive upon this God-given institution of male and female within the confines of marriage. The husband-wife relationship is the springboard of human government. Within the home, husband and wife work together to keep things under control, to lay down some laws and responsibilities, and it is the springboard of all human government. The home is the springboard of education, husband and wife working together to teach the children and all that we see in the school systems and the whole education system really flows right out of this relationship. It is the core and the essence of the church in many ways, as it is a place of training in worship and in the scriptures. And when the marriage bond begins to disintegrate within a culture, that society is headed for chaos. Eden Baptist Church, don't be duped by the financial prosperity our economy boasts at the moment. Our culture is crumbling. We may be wealthy right now, but we cannot sustain it without the male-female relationship in order. Our fallen world promotes such twisted, depraved notions as divorce. And the Christian church is only a few percentage points behind. 
Our fallen world promotes feminism and spousal abuse and homosexuality and male inferiority and polygamy and adultery and the list goes on and on and the Christian church for all practical purposes is just a few percentage points behind or a few years or decades behind in their theology. Jesus said it in Matthew 19.8, it was not this way from the beginning. Rather, as verse 25 says, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. As one has put it, there was no barrier of any kind which drove a wedge between Adam and Eve. They lived and loved and communed with a perfectly clear conscience. And what does 131 say? God saw that it was very good. What a telling sign it is of the chaos in which we live, that the very relationship God intended to civilize and stabilize mankind is one of the foundational causes of chaos in our world. In a fallen world, we need Christ to make it work because we're all sitting here, anybody that is married or if you're thinking of ever being married or you know anyone who is married, you know couples don't work like Adam and Eve worked here. There's sin that's in the mix. We need Christ to make it work. Not a book necessarily, not tapes or video series, as helpful as they may be. We need, we demand the power of Jesus Christ to make it work. It's interesting that in the movie The Postman, the movie, Kevin Costner takes the liberty to change one of the evil villains from David Brin's book. And you know what he names him? Captain Bethlehem. Why? This vile man, this villain in the book, who symbolizes the chaos of disorder and ruin of civilization, is cryptically named Captain Bethlehem, saying, in other words, that whatever it is that civilizes man, it's not Jesus Christ. Well, let this fallen world say what it will against the goodness of God. But I know in my heart, I have found, and I'm finding day in and day out, that God's design is very, very good. Now, as I say that about my relationship with my wife, which I thank God for every day, and have never for one second in all of my life doubted that beautiful decision or questioned her, that she is absolutely in every way a benefit to me. When I say that, however, I want to say to those who say my relationship's not like that. Sin has wreaked havoc in my past relationships or in my present relationship. Please, as you consider what God has said here, or maybe as one who's not married, please consider what God has said here and don't wistfully dream of another world. We live in this world. This is about you, and this is about your world. What we need to do is bring to our minds and to our experience the design of God and to say amen to it. It's good what he did. It's right what he did. There's things possibly messed up in my past or in my present. I may not understand how it all works. Or maybe in God's design and intention, He's not intended a man or a woman for our lives. It's, it's a different world. It applies to us all a bit uniquely. But what we must do is not dream wistfully of Eve or Adam. 
But what we must do is see that this is the foundation of our world. And I say to those who are Christian couples, this reminds us again of our need to honor and reverence our mate. With all their imperfections, with all of the failures that we bring into the marriage, to say, this is good. How many people have I pleaded with, not anyone here, but how many have I pleaded with in counsel? You have got to understand this husband and wife conflict. You must understand that marriage is good. What you're doing to each other is not good. But it's not marriage. It's not your being together. That's the problem. We have got to honor and stay with this bond and to cleave, to cling, that is, to be glued together for life. It's how God intended. We need to honor and reverence one another and celebrate God's goodness in this beautiful bond and relationship. For anyone here that may be among us who is not confident that your sins are forgiven before this Creator God, I'll tell you, it's really interesting. This Jesus pictures his believers as his bride. It's his bride, the church. You can be related to Jesus Christ by virtue of the work that he accomplished on the cross. If you do not know today that you would spend eternity with God in heaven, you can know through Jesus. And we'd love to show you how you can know that just by taking the Bible, doing just what we've done here today, and opening the Bible and showing you how God can give you eternal life, how you can enter into a beautiful, personal relationship with the Creator. If you're running for Him, if you think that the evil people are the Captain Bethlehems, in other words, you think that the Christians and Jesus, it's just not there, you will have to suffer the consequences of a life out of sync with the Creator. But if you'll come to Him, He'll save you in His grace and His mercy. Father, we dedicate to You the thoughts that have coursed through our mind, and we ask that they would take root, that these seeds would bear 